Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. We are so glad you're here. For more content and upcoming events, visit anchorchurchcsra.com. Title of the message today is Evil Defeated. That's right, friends. We're having a funeral for death. We're having a funeral for evil today. In fact, that's already happened through what Jesus has accomplished for us. But we have to come back to this idea that even though there's good in our world and even though there's evil in our world, that God and Satan are not duking it out trying to see who will win. God has already won. He's already been victorious through Jesus Christ. So we live our Christian life from a posture of victory, not from a posture of what if. I don't know how many of you struggle like me with what if sometimes. You ever get on the what if carousel? Have you ridden that thing lately? What if this? What if that? It goes round and round and round, right? And what I try to do is I'll try to what if the positive side. You know, it's like what if, what if this happens? What if this happens? It's like, well, what if it doesn't? What if God proves himself faithful like he will, like he always does? And so we can fight fear like we just sang about. Fear is not our future, We can say hello to life and peace and all the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. And so today as we look at God's word, as we have a little funeral here for death and fear and shame, we see in the story the dominoes are falling one after another after another. And I wanted to start out with this Proverbs passage in 16. Proverbs 16, will you turn there with me in your Bible? We're going to get into Esther. This is a couple of setup passages. We're going to breeze through these because we could easily spend a whole other sermon's time in these uh, passages. But just a few verses here. Proverbs 16, verse 3 through 5. Commit your activities or your plans, your translations may say. Commit your activities to the Lord and your plans will be, what's that word? Oh, one more time. Come on. There we go. I know we're Baptists, but come on, we can, we can get a little bit more, right? And by the way, we're, you know, we're, we might be Baptists, but if you want to give an occasional amen or affirmative grunt, like, mm, man, that's good. Like, you know, we can do that, okay? I'm not asking you to give me personal feedback, like for affirmation of me, but I'm just saying, you know, we can be vocal in that way. And, and sometimes, like, we just need to say, man, that's, man, that's good. And not, not what I'm saying is good, but like, man, the word is good. And so just know that, that, that that's possible, uh, that we can do that. All right, so here we go. Commit your plans, commit your activities to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has planned everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of disaster. Everyone with a proud heart, here we go, is testable to the Lord. Does God love the world? Yes. But does God have a special hatred for a prideful heart? Yes, he does. Both, both those things can be true. To love someone doesn't mean that you agree with everything that they do, right? And that you love everything about them and that you love their character, right? This is the love of Christ and this is the love of God for the world. He hates a proud heart because it's not his plan. Everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. Be assured, he, that is the prideful man, the prideful woman, the prideful person, will not go unpunished because God is just. God is just. So this is a little setup verse. And then this New Testament verse. We have one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Just to kind of serve as a primer. Ready? Matthew 19, 26. This is Jesus talking. And Jesus looked at them. He looks at the people around them. He looks at 
all surrounding them, you know, the crowds, and then, you know, the Pharisees would have been present. And then he looks at them and he says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, how many things? All things, amen, all things are possible. And so that is the first thing I want you to write down before we get into the passage of Esther. That's what I really want to springboard into today's sermon. And really, if you get something from the whole series, I want you to know that with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. You know, this phrase from the the lips of our Savior, there's actually three important doctrines of God that we've really been driving this sermon. I couldn't help but notice these words from Jesus help, help remind us of these three P's that we've been talking about a lot. We've talked a lot about two of the P's, and there's a third P we're gonna throw in today. So let's put this up there. We talk about with God. With God, all things are possible. With God, that reminds us of his presence. He is with us. With God, all things are possible. I saw a sign down the way of the school that said, All things are possible. And while that's important to communicate to our world and to our students, and I know what's meant by that, I know the message that, that, you know, the education system and schools are trying to communicate to students, but what is missing from that piece of, of advice and wisdom is that, no, with God, all things are possible. And that's what we're called to remind people. Yes, anything is possible, but not apart from God. No, but with him with the all-knowing, all-powerful, almighty God, all things are possible. So we have with God, it reminds us of his presence. Then we have all things, that reminds us of his providence. How many things are possible? All things, not just some things, not only the things that God can do this time or that, no. You're like, and God doesn't do everything at once, but all things are possible. And so it reminds us of Ephesians 3, right, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do beyond all that we ask or imagine. And this is the next one, our possible, his ableness, his ability, his power. God is powerful to do what? Whatever he wants. When? Whenever he wants. With who? Or whom? I forget which one it is. (laughs) Whomever he pleases. I think I nailed that one, grammar people. All right, good. I got 100 on the test, but it doesn't mean I remember it. All right, so it's one class I did good at. The evil plan to wipe out the people of God that looks like for a large period of time in Esther, years and years, you know, this, it looks like evil's winning. We talked about this before in the series. It looks like, and guys, we know how this feels because we're convinced some days like, it just looks like the bad guys are winning. When we look at the news, when we get on social media, when we go to work or, or the grocery store sometimes or you know, Walmart parking lot, I don't know, just wherever life finds us. It just looks like the bad guys are winning. Terrorism, wars, temptation, fear, doubt in our own hearts, right? Does God really... Is he really one? Is he really at work? Don't let those moments discourage you because it's in those moments we're reminded with God all things are possible. If you just need to preach that to yourself this week and every week and every day as you put on each shoe getting ready to head out the door, man, 
all things are possible with God. This is not some cheesy coffee cup verse that we just like sling around willy-nilly just to not deal with the problems of life. No, we really believe this. That's what's different about the Christian. That's what's different about you as you're present at your school or at your workplace or, at, or wherever God has you at home. It's what your kids see in you. It's like, whoa, like, dad doesn't freak out when that happens. Why? It's because dad's so great? No, it's because his heavenly dad is so great. It's because he really trusts in God. Wow, mom, mom doesn't seem to get frazzled with this or that. Or wow, grandma, grandma really seems to just be calm even though this is stressful. So we can demonstrate this for our world. All right, we're going to get into Esther, I promise. Scene one. Scene one, ready? I've, I've been giving you the three scenes each week. I think I did four scenes one time, but we're going to do three today. Three scenes today. Scene one is the queen's request. You're probably going, wasn't that a scene from the other week? Yes, the queen has had more than one time to go before the king and make a request where she was fearful for her life. Esther was not unfearful. Esther did not completely lack fear. She was not perfect, just like none of us are perfect. She was scared out of her mind. But remember, courage is not the absence of fear. And to be bold and faithful means that, yes, sometimes even though I'm scared, even though I have anxiety about this, I'm going to carry that forward into obedience. That's possible, friends. That's really what obedience looks like. I know we want to make obedience look like lollipops and candy canes. Like, well, I'll be obedient if, if these things line up. And it's like, no, man, we're obedient anyway, even in the face of fear, even in the face of anxiety and depression and the rest. And so scene one, the queen's request, we, we read these verses together. I'm, I'm preaching from the CSB. We read from the NIV. And I, I hope you guys see, yes, the king's name's different. One uses the Greek name, Hebrew name. But hopefully in the different translations, it just helps you put some pieces together. And so, Esther chapter 7, we're just going to read the first couple verses here. We're just going to go back through it. Remember, there's this feast. The king, okay, so who's present at the feast? Ready? Let's count. The king, evil Haman, right, and Esther. Three invitees, three people present. Check, check, check. Haman's pumped. He's excited, right? Because for Haman, this is a privilege, man. This is an honor. Nobody else was invited, just Haman. So he's feeling good. But at this particular one, he wasn't feeling quite as good because why? Remember from last week, he just got done parading Mordecai around town, dressing him like a king. What he imagined for himself, he had to do for another. The unraveling of the prideful heart is happening. Each domino is clicking the other, falling piece by piece. King Ahasuerus is just clueless. He, he, he is the character of, you guys have heard stories before, short stories you read in literature, movies that you've seen. I think of uh, my favorite foolish, uh, clueless king is, is King Richard from Robin Hood. You, know, you just kind of have to laugh at him. You know, he even sucks on his thumb when he, when he gets upset. You guys, you guys have seen Robin Hood, right? You know, like the old school Robin Hood. All right, so we'll make sure you all know what I'm talking about. Um, and so he's just completely clueless. And, and you'll see that again in the passage today. He has his moments, but then it's just like, wow. Mm. And then Esther. Guys, just be reminded, there's a reason why we're singing about kicking fear to the curb. Esther's scared. She's scared in this moment. Yeah, she's being brave, but she's also afraid. Because the king is so emotionally unstable, at any moment, he could flip his lid. Deals off. Off with your head. Kings were notorious for this. 
Ahasuerus, we, we know from history that he was particularly known for one thing, not really his foolishness. I mean, we see it in the text. But the number one thing historians tell us he was known for was his anger. There's many, many, many writings, extra biblical writings even, that corroborate his anger. He was a hothead. You never knew what this guy was going to do. You said the wrong thing. You flinched the wrong way, and you're dead. And so we have our characters. We're at the seventh feast in the book of Esther. It's number seven. There's something to that, right? God does something special on the number seven. This is the second feast where Esther has specifically asked these three to be there. And so we get into the verse. The king, remember, he, he tells Esther, he's like, hey, whatever you want. Now, this is hyperbolic, emotionally unstable King Ahasuerus. Just kind of, he overpromises, under delit. He just says whatever sometimes, whatever he thinks will make people like him more. And so he says, hey, whatever you want. Whatever you seek, even if it's half the kingdom, hyperbole, he doesn't literally, he's not going to give her half the kingdom. It will be done. Let's be reminded, friends, no, no deed is unseen, no word is unheard by God. The first banquet Esther threw from last week, this provided Haman, evil, wicked Haman, a, in, it provided him a false illusion of safety. This is how pride works. Pride blinds us. We talked about that, right? Pride blinds us. And we think sometimes we, as we struggle with our pride, and then we've seen it in, in, in others as they continue in their pride, as one continues forward each step in their pride, where there's no consequence, they think, oh, man, I'm, man, I'm getting away with this. This is, this is really going to work. And so they go a step further, and they go a step further, and go a step further. So this is, this is Haman's mindset. We, we have to get in his mind because he's like, man, this is, even though I've had a terrible day, things are looking up for me because I've been invited, to, I've been swept away to this banquet where I'm special and I'm, I'm invited. But God is just. We said that a minute ago, right? God is just. Nothing is unseen. This is the hope that we have while, while, while evil happens. God is going to do something about it. We need not worry. Every bit of every injustice will be dealt with. And we can take comfort and hope in that while we struggle with seeing what we see and feeling what we feel. But notice Esther's petition. Man, we're just going to camp out here for a second. Each, each one of her petitions, there's so much wisdom. You really see, I mean, she did not go to college or seminary and learn and take like, you know, how to have wise conversations elective or anything like, you know, like she had, she had not been, like this is, this is favor and blessing from God. This is God's spirit guiding her and anointing her for such a time as this. And friends, the same spirit will guide you in your conversations, in your tough talks, in your tough times where you've got to be brave, where you've got to step up and say something. It might be a little uncomfortable, but it's true and it needs to happen. And so we're going to camp out here for a second and just kind of looked at her tact and her shrewdness. First of all, she was intentional. Esther was intentional in everything she said. They were, this was not just spraying the hose any which way and just unloading the whole cart. She even, it, man, it's even the timing. There's all these banquets, right? Well, she had this, why, did, why didn't she tell him here? Because it wasn't the right time. She didn't sense from the Lord that it was the right time. And there's, uh, I couldn't help but think about this as I was writing the message. What is this, friends? Anybody know? 
A tuner, yeah. It's a guitar tuner. Really, it can be used of any instrument up here. You just put it on the, you put it on the headstock there. You turn it on. You strike the string, and it'll tell you which note is sounding, and then it'll tell you how far you have to go to achieve perfection until that frequency is on the dot. And what is true about a tuner is this. A, this tuner is perfect in its assessment. It's set to A equals 440. Without getting too nerdy with you, that means this is the mark, it is perfect. What is our measure of perfect revelation for us to follow? Jesus' words, God's word, special revelation from him. It's our Bible. We don't don't get to pick, it's 440, it's here, it's in tune. We, we adjust to this, but what was true about Esther is true about this guitar. See, these tuning pegs right here, when you use the tuner and you put it on top like this, you have to strike the string and you have to do what with these on the side? You have to actually turn them. But see, some guitars, you turn them and they're terrible, they'll... They'll go here and they'll shoot way over here and it's really hard to tune because those tuning pegs are not sensitive to what's being heard. But a really nice guitar, a really finely tuned guitar and one with nice tuning pegs, it's very sensitive. It's very tunable. And why do I tell you about all that? It's not just because I'm a music geek trying to tell you about tuning pegs. It's because our hearts work the exact same way. Let me tell you something about Esther. The number one thing you can learn from Esther is that she had a heart sensitive to the voice of God. She was listening to his voice. Remember that old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing? What's, what's the next line there? Tune my heart to sing thy grace. That's our prayer day by day. Christian in the room, That's our prayer. Maybe that's your prayer this whole week, every day when you first wake up. God, tune my heart to hear your voice. Yeah, sometimes to sing his grace, but other times to do what Esther does here, she's intentional with her words. She says in her answer, verse three, if I found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request and spare my people. This is my desire. King Ahasuerus is perking up right now. He's like, spare my... What she says is, the queen's life's in danger, king. You've got to do something. Help. My people, he would have not have known what she meant by this. He did not know that she was Jewish yet. Remember, there's, there's bits of information being, being sprinkled along in God's timing and as God communicates with her to speak wisely and tactfully and truthfully. But let's just look at a few things. I actually made a little slide here just to kind of, just, just so you could jot some notes down about her speech. First of all, she had a humble approach. And we need to remember this. Whenever we, especially when we have conversations, maybe it's with someone that is in a position over you, maybe in an organization, maybe it's like um, a community figure, maybe it's, um, you know, just any time that we're speaking to someone else, even if they're not an authority over you, though, this, this really applies to anyone. We need to approach the conversation humbly. Now, what does that mean? Well, she doesn't come in guns blazing. She, she, she could have been as loose cannon of an emotional wreck as King of Hazard. Well, she, she could have matched that and just tried to speak his language there, but she knew better. God gave her this 
humility. What does she say? If I have found favor with you. Your majesty. She's being respectful. And so she's humble. She's respectful. The next thing that Esther did in this passage that we can really take away is that she communicated clearly. This is what being choosy with our words does. This is why we write things out before we say them, right? This is why we, this is why we write the text, delete that text, and write it again. Or we have someone else read it and say, hey, am I off base here? You know, we help each other with that. So she's humble, respectful. She communicates clearly. Not only that, but then she's courageous. She's not afraid to say the truth. And she had a billion reasons to be afraid. But this was the moment, Esther 7, verse 3 and 4. This is the moment where she gets to unload that cart. So there is a time to do that. She's counted the cost. She's done it for days and days and days. She's prayed about it. She communicates with a full risk in mind. And again, there's a time for us to stand up and take action in a way that might cost us everything. It might cost you a relationship. It might cost you your job. It doesn't mean we have those conversations willy-nilly, but, but there is a time. And God will help you with that if you lean into him. Great leadership, friends, is a humble courage. Great leadership is humble courage. Scene two, the king's rage. <laughs> so, we talked about that, right? <laughs> the king gets angry, and this is no different. But this is a righteous anger here. This is where, you know, he... The king does display some some positive attributes in the story. King Ahasuerus spoke up, verse 5, and asked Queen Esther, who is this? And where's the one who would defy such a scheme? Now, are you guys sensing the the comedic irony here? Have you latched onto it yet? This is an odd question. Who is this? Now, who who would authorize such a thing? Who was it, friends? Ahasuerus did. He, he's, he's the one that, that gave Haman the go. He gave him the blank check. Haman's like, hey, there, there are these anonymous problem makers. He didn't, he, didn't say, he didn't say exactly who it was. He said, they break every law all the time. They're just total outlaws. They're a problem, and I can get rid of them. In fact, I'll pay you. I'll pay you to help you get rid of them. And he can't see the... That doesn't make sense. He just says, okay, great, sounds good. This is his leadership style. He approves things left and right without really knowing what's going on. So he doesn't even know that it's actually his fault. That he's, he's about to kill his own queen, his favorite queen that he's ever had. He's about to kill off not only her, but the entire nation. He, he's clueless. Ahasuerus is completely clueless. Here we go. Esther's answer. The adversary, the enemy is this evil Haman. Let me give you a point of application that we get from Esther here. As the people of God, I'm gonna put this on the screen for us. As the people of God, we embrace a ready heart to do what? Expose evil at the proper time. There's a proper time to stand up and say, this is wrong. What a what an increasingly day by day less comfortable time to do that today to stand up for truth. Because man, you say the wrong thing nowadays, you say one little wrong thing, canceled, done. And people's whole careers for decades, they said one thing that a certain group of influential people didn't like, 
And then that influential people influences everybody, and they cast this person as a as a monster. As a you know, I mean, we've we've all seen it. No one no one in here is like, really, I wasn't aware that's part of our culture today. I don't know. And let's be honest, guys. Like we're like sometimes like I, I mean, I'll be the first to admit it. I'll step out and admit it. Like. I'm afraid sometimes to step up and say, that's, man, that's wrong. Because I, I know what, I mean, I've leveled with you guys before. I, I like, I mean, just my personality, my, my, my wiring and all that. I like for people to like me. I'm a social guy. I don't, I don't want to say something that's, like, just in my flesh. I struggle with that. But it doesn't matter because sometimes there's, again, it costs Esther everything in this moment. And it costs, it, we risk when we stand up for the truth, we, we are vulnerable and we risk losing relationships or, 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 or this or that. But if it's right, then we ought to do it. And sometimes we got to call evil what it is. We got to just step up and say, no, that's wrong. So I don't know what specific application you will take from that, but I trust that God will guide you in that. And that if if anything, and how do, we, how do we know it's evil, though? Because in, in our culture today, it's very subjective, right? It's like, well, whatever you think is evil, whatever I think is evil, if I think it's evil, I stand up. You know, it's just freedom of speech, right? So I can just go out and start calling stuff evil. But according to whose metric? Well, our mainstream culture says it's up to you. It's whatever you think is evil. What happens when two people think different things are evil and this person also disagrees? Well, who's, well, who's is right? And the, and, and the best answer our world today can give us is, well, everyone. Everyone's right, no one's right. There, there's right and wrong. God made the world that way. There's dark and light. There's evil and there's good. How do we know what's good? The law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 19.7. God's word is our standard. We go to the word. If it differs from this, it's evil. And it doesn't mean that we have to stand on every corner in every building in every moment and hold up signs and you know, yell at people and all that kind of thing. But friends, there is a time to put on the full armor of God and swing your sword. And I trust that God will help us as we move forward with that. But as a people of God, one more time, we embrace a what? A, a ready heart. God, I'm ready. I'm not gonna swing my sword willy-nilly, but I'm ready to expose evil at the proper time. So Haman's response, he's been found out. He's been exposed as a liar, a cheat for everything he is. Just in time for Halloween, right? The mask comes off. This is who we have. Friends, for every evil presence in this world, the light will expose what is in the darkness. Scripture promises that in a host of places. Why? God's just. He'll handle it. If there's someone getting away with something, they won't get away with it forever. They may fool everybody here on earth, but everyone will stand before God one day and give an account. Everyone. That can either be the most frightening thing ever or it can be the most comforting thing ever. For the Christian trusting in the righteousness of Christ, that moment is a moment that we look forward to more than anything. To put our arms around our Savior. And for the evil, prideful, wicked person, it will be a very rude awakening unto eternal death. God will sort it out. The king arises in his anger, right? He goes from where they were drinking wine. He's, he's taking a walk. 
don't know if you've ever taken a walk before. You've just been so, so angry you had to just take a walk. It's a very wise thing to do in dealing with our anger. Sometimes it's better just to take a walk and just to process and just before you say something. So as he exits the room, Haman sees his only option at this point is just to beg for mercy. But friends, is this a genuine plea for mercy? No, because some people are just sorry they got caught. They're not sorry for the thing that they did. And he's just sorry for the consequences. True repentance is a deep sorrow that desires to change and do something different. False repentance is just a, an empty plea for mercy that is not rooted in a genuine sorrow for what's been done, but it's to avoid the consequence. Because for chapters now, he's, he's avoided consequences, but his time has now come. And the king comes in at the most awkward time. He's fallen all over the queen. It looks terrible. It looks like he's, he, he's, he, he's clearly touching some part of her. Some, some, some thinks he was at her feet, weeping, like culturally would have been appropriate. Some, some thinks you know, he could have been literally on top of her. It, we, don't, we don't know, but whatever it was, the king didn't like it. Any husband in here would not like that either, right? I mean, if someone's you know, too close and has a wicked heart. So he sorts all that out. He's like, are you kidding me? Mm-mm. As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they cover his face like they did for execution. You've seen this before in movies. The bag goes over the head. And just as this is happening, they cover the face, and then we get to the third scene. We get to the third scene, and it's Haman's reward. Haman's reward. He gets what's coming to him. Harbona, just the right time, right? We talked about Hathak, one of the other servants. Now it's Harbona's turn. And clearly, we know from this text and some others that Haman had run his mouth quite a bit about his great privilege and all this stuff. Haman had made a lot of enemies within the palace. A lot of, a lot of people didn't like this guy. And Harbona's quick to step up. He says, hey, hey, actually built some gallows 75 feet tall. Remember these huge spikes. These aren't like 18th, 17th century gallows. These are like just huge spikes that they like to impale people on. And he, he made those for Mordecai, who, remember, is the guy that helped you, King Ahasuerus, who saved your life from an assassination plot. So the king said, hey, hang him on his own gallows. And that's where the phrase comes from, right? That's where the Proverbs tell us that the prideful dig a pit for themselves. They dig, they dig their own pit. Hang him on it, he says in verse 9. So they hang Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's anger subsided. Did you get that? Haman was hung on his own gallows right outside his house. I mean, man, man, that's brutal. He hung it, he he had the gallows constructed there so he could look out his kitchen window every day and see Mordecai hanging there with a spike through him. I mean, what what a what a wicked dude. But our culture today loves violence too, doesn't it? In fact, in a really weird way, we look, especially this time of year, strangely enough, we look to violence as a source of entertainment. There was a movie that just came out recently. I won't tell you the name of it. You can go Google it yourself, but um, I'm not endorsing it. I haven't seen it. I won't see it. Um, But this movie has become very famous lately. It's It's in theaters now, I believe, or was. Uh, because um, a great number of people were actually uh, puking during the movie. It was so gory that people were actually getting sick 
And the creators of the movie loving this. I mean, that's why they made the movie. They wanted to make it as gory as possible for this effect. And there were even people coming out of the movie saying like, yeah, I went with my friends and we threw up five times. It was the best thing ever. I mean, this is the world we live in. I mean, like we, we see stuff like that. And we're like, that is so archaic and barbaric, man, that, we, that, that, a cult, that like someone would love violence to that level. And then we, you know, we have a multi-billion dollar industry completely rooted in like, how gory can we make something? And then we wonder why the Ted Bundys and the Jeffrey Dahmers and the like show up out of nowhere. It's because our culture loves violence and gore. Video games based on you can do whatever you want, beat up whoever you want, and rob whoever you want, and commit crimes. Consequence free. When you're done, shut the game system off. So what does God do in a world like that? Remember, friends, with God... Anything is possible. With man, it's impossible. With God, anything is possible. There's this principle in the Bible, reaping and sowing. In Galatians 6, we're just going to read this, these few verses together. We're just going to kind of land. This is where the plane's landing in Esther 7. Galatians 6, 7 says, don't be deceived. Now, why does it say that? Well, because people are deceived about this. And so we need to have an awakening here. We need, we need to sober up and read this. Don't, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. That means God does not miss a thing. What did I say earlier? God sees everything. He knows everything. Whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows his flesh, here's the distinction, ready? The one who sows his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the capital S spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit. Now, I know we're not first century agrar- or even um, you know, farmers in the BC era, scattering seed. I don't think any of us here are farmers necessarily doing that. So what are we talking about when we say so? Friends, this is what we give our heart to. You give your heart to the things of the flesh and that's all you're ever gonna get is temporal pleasure. A momentary pleasure that fleets and always leaves you wanting for more. It never, it never satisfies. Right? We know this through watching our family members go through addictions, or maybe you battled them yourself. And maybe you're a you're a recovering addict yourself. Maybe you know what it's what it's like to to want something so bad and then to please the flesh and then ha- and then right in that very moment you you just want more. It's just fleeting. It's vanity. But this is our sinful condition. But God has done something about that. He sent his spirit, the capital S spirit, to come and reveal the truth about Jesus Christ and that we can receive a new heart. What does Ezekiel say? Says that God takes this heart of stone and he removes the heart of stone. He gives us the heart of flesh. And what does the heart of flesh do? What's what's the difference between a heart of stone and a heart of flesh? We're sensitive to the tuning of God's word. We can hear his voice with with, with a fleshy, sensitive heart. Sorry, with a, with a tender heart, not a heart of stone. Verse nine, let us not get tired of doing good. for We will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. And this is what Esther did. This wasn't just for herself. She wasn't just trying to save her own skin. She worked for the entire people of God. 
It's our mindset as believers. We're not just in it for ourselves. We're not just here this morning for ourselves. We're, we're, we're here for the kingdom. Yes, for our church family here at Anchor, but for the good of the whole kingdom. I want to remind us of the gospel this morning because we're going to do that every week at Anchor Church. We're going to land with what Jesus has done for us. The gospel is a great reversal. We see in the book of Esther a great reversal over and over and over again. There's a reversal. There was, earlier in Esther, there was the exaltation of evil. It seemed like evil was winning and good was losing. But now we see the appropriate end. Evil is judged. There's a funeral for evil. And good and love. God's holiness, God's justice wins. The gospel is a great reversal, remember? Death defeated on the cross. When Christ hung there on the cross, he said, it is finished. What is finished? The work for each and every one of us. The atoning sacrifice. He made possible peace with God, not dependent on us bringing animals to a temple to be slain each and every year and blood to be sprinkled and all this. No, Christ was the culmination of all that and he defeats sin and death once and for all so that we, when we struggle in a sinful, fallen, and broken world, we can fight from a place of victory. We can be victorious in Christ and he can make us a new creation. The curse of sin from the Garden of Eden broken. The promise in the Garden of Eden that the snake crusher would come and crush the serpent's head. This is what Christ does on the cross. And then he gives eternal life. He says, whoever believes in the Son of Man shall never perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever puts their faith in Christ will never be forsaken by the Lord or ever be defeated by evil. He says that we're, we're promised the victory that Christ gave us. So they hung Haman on the gallows, right? They hung him on his own gallows. The king's wrath subsides. And here's the difference, and here's what, here's what happens, ready? The guilty man was punished so that the innocent could go free. But the gospel we trust in is the exact opposite. Christ came as the innocent, perfect lamb of God. Utterly innocent, didn't do a thing wrong, perfectly obeyed the entire law of God. In fact, he even fulfilled it. And he comes in the innocent, eternal son of God, takes on flesh. He comes and lives a life we could never live, a perfect life none, none of us could live. And he comes and he dies as the innocent so that the guilty could go free. And that's the beauty of the gospel. It's the great reversal. It's the opposite of what you would think. And I know for many of you, as I look out in, into you guys today, I know that many of you have trusted in Christ. And so maybe today is just a great day to just bow your head and just tell him thank you. Maybe there's something that you heard during the message today. You're like, wow, Jesus, I haven't thought about that aspect of the gospel in a long time. Maybe you just want to pray that to him. In fact, I'm going to invite, I'm going to invite you to bow your heads now. Just give him your worship. Respond to him today. I hope we never sit in here any, any week during the response time. And you know, I hope that each and every week that we're just sensitive to the Spirit's prompting, however he's prompting you to respond. Just talk to him in this moment. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for the resurrection. Thank you that it's your righteousness that we trust in. Not our own. Not our own works, but yours. 
God, I pray that anyone in this room that needs peace with you, that they would know that it is, it is incredibly simple to have peace with you today. Lord, I pray anyone in this room that needs peace with you would pray to you right now, admit their sinfulness, turn from their sin, and trust in you as Lord and Savior who died on the cross, who rose again, that they would believe in you today. They put their belief, their faith, their hope, their trust in you, that you would become their anchor today, that they would pray to you in this moment. And for all those that have trusted in you here today, Lord, I pray that they would just again, just say, Christ is the sure and steady anchor. Though all around me may be shaken, I have built my life upon the rock. Thank you, Jesus, for being our rock. Thank you, Lord, that it is not up to us to distribute justice. It is not up to us to defeat fear and death and shame, but it's what you've already done on the cross. And we look back to the cross, we say, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the victorious resurrection. Thank you for defeating sin and death once and for all. Thank you for the, the Greek word to tell us that it is finished. We worship you today, Lord. When we feel overwhelmed, when we feel like we just can't take one more bit of bad news or one more setback, give us the hope and strength that we need to walk with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit anchorchurchcsra.com or follow us on social media at anchorchurchcsra.